Hi everyone. So, in my COVID stint, I've been watching as many shows as possible. I'm getting a lot better. So, uh, you know, uh, hopefully, hopefully this, I'll be able to work a little bit soon and and whatnot. But um, one show that I thought I I should review since I've been thoroughly enjoying it is The Flying Nun. Um, first season's great. Third season is almost as good as the first season, but you could tell um, things weren't going so well. You know, the chipperness of the characters wasn't as chipper as it was in the first season. Uh, second season was just pure slapstick, and it didn't have the heart that the first and third had. Now, I want to explain something before I go on. A lot of people, a lot of actors, a lot of producers from that time tried to blame a bunch of factors. Oh, the ratings were failing. Oh, this was failing. Oh, people didn't like working on the show. Oh, this. Oh, that. Uh, Sally Field had severe depression. And then she got, you know, she uh, was married. She had a kid. She was not having a happy time in her life. And she felt like the, the Flying Nun, uh, to some extent, uh, was not a right fit for her. She wanted to do serious, dramatic stuff after doing Gidget. So when she was working on the Flying Nun, she was not in the right mindset. She said, um, I just was depressed and I didn't really like it. I was almost forced into it when my stepfather said, listen, you take this or you might never get a job again. And in her interview, she said... Um, that she kept in touch and was still good friends with the actors and actresses until the days that they died. She's the last surviving cast member, by the way. And uh, she also said, but you know what? In some way, the, the Flying Nun um, drove me to learn more about acting. And so I started going after more serious things and I started improving myself. And, and uh, that's when I started getting uh, better parts. And so she said that, and a lot of people took that to mean that she hates The Flying Nun. I think she also said that she never watched it since then, you know, when she gave that interview. But uh, I can't believe that she hasn't seen a few episodes. Uh, and I also can't believe that she held that resentment on so much. Because there are clearly some episodes where she's having... A lot of fun, at least in the first season. Uh, one thing in her defense, she, except for the really high stunts where the person's clearly attached to a crane, it that person's had to have been a man. <laughs> they looked way too out of proportion for Sally Field. Uh, but when she's doing the stunts that you could see her face or she's rising above the um the convent it's clearly her and those riggings from every single person who's ever been rigged on wires during that period even be you know before during that period even up to christopher reeve and superman every single person said those rigs are incredibly painful and uncomfortable and she was doing it a lot so i can totally see why Sally Field had some 
bad emotions uh, related to the flying nun. But I think it's wrong to say that she hated the flying nun, uh, especially how she worded her words, you know, how she carefully worded her responses. It's, it's difficult to convey to people that there's no real black and white, that bad things are going on in your life and you projected those things into your work and you were frustrated that the show wasn't more serious, especially after coming off of uh, two years, two or three years of Gidget. I think it was two years. Uh, so she, she felt like she was uh, not really that appreciated, I think, uh, by her agents or by the, her job offers. And she felt she could give more. But then again, as she said, uh, the Flying Nun inspired her to try harder and be better. And that's when she started getting some pretty great parts. You know, so um, that's Sally Field's uh, opinion of it. In addition, a lot of people, uh, so that's, that's the actor's uh, opinion. A lot of people in a lot of these shows, you know, I Dream a Genie or whatever, are told that, oh, well, everything tanked, the ratings tanked, and that's why they canceled our show. 1969 to 19, uh, well, it was, yeah, it was 1969 to like 1971, almost the entire TV lineup was canceled. There, what was it, like 80 to 90% of all TV shows were canceled. And a lot of people say, oh, it was people's change, the audience is changing tastes. It wasn't. It was the buyout of the Desilu Studios. Desilu, two-thirds of all television programs, as I mentioned before, were produced on Desilu Studios. Lucille Ball sold it off in, what was it, 67? It's between 66 and 67. And it took Paramount two years to figure out how to do a hatchet job to destroy Desilu Studios, to eliminate non-network productions and to put everyone under the cold unforgiving thumb of network uh, moguls basically uh, a lot of people hated Lucy and Desi Arnaz for creating Desilu Studios because it allowed production companies to create shows that people enjoyed and people loved stupid fun shows that varied it, it, and look at the different shows that were on uh, from 66 to 70 I mean you had compelling space dramas you had compelling theater dramas you had a variety shows that uh, you know a lot of them the tapes are gone but you had variety shows that uh, tried to produce meaningful content uh, you had all sorts of different stuff on, right? You had morality. Most of these shows had morality plays, right? They weren't the stupid sitcoms. The Flying Nun falls into the category of morality plays. Like comedy morality plays, and similar to Andy Griffith. Star Trek was morality plays. Groundbreaking fought against... Of course, it was, I mean, it was a 
NBC show, but it was not NBC. It was a, God, it's under Paramount. Yeah, it was an NBC show under Paramount. Um, shot on the Desilu Studios. Desilu Studios were absolutely destroyed, completely, by the end of 1972. Uh, so you had shows like Wild Wild West, I Dream of Genie, The Flying Nun, Star Trek. Uh, I believe Hogan's Heroes was canceled in 69. But then again, I think Hogan's Heroes also had, had gone on for five years. I Dream of Genie had actually gone on for five years. Um, in, in TV world, uh, and Dick Van Dyke has explained this many times when he was asked, why did your show end at five years? Well, back then, except for Bonanza, except for Rawhide, except for Gunsmoke, I, I believe Rawhide counts. Um, you know, soap opera-like shows. Except for those, you know, the series Hardcore Dramas. TV shows got five years, and that was it. Period. Five years, and that was it. Uh, Sally Field, uh, she was contracted for Gidget for... Actually, she was contracted for five years. So I believe it was two years with Gidget and then three years for with Flying Nun. So a lot of this stuff ended in 69 to begin with. The contracts were up. And when the contracts were up, Paramount diced it all up. Paramount just destroyed it all. So for all of the shows whose contracts were up, they didn't really have to make an excuse. For the actors like Sally Field, they didn't really have to make an excuse to end The Flying Nun. For shows like uh, Star Trek, they jerked the schedule around. And you may say, well, what do you mean? Paramount is an NBC. It's true. It's true. Uh, Paramount, however, was part of the production with Star Trek. Right along with Desilu Studios as part of the contract when Desilu sold out to them. And it was all basically orchestrated by the major studios. I mean, they all worked together. CBS, NBC, Paramount, MGM, all of them worked together, no ABC, to buy the, the properties. And so Paramount, when it acquired Desilu, essentially, what happened was, it acquired on the promise that the other studios were going to help them dice it up. That's what they did. And there are several tell-all books about how the executives did that, about how they misreported ratings numbers, about how the ratings numbers didn't actually really change. And still to this day, a lot of the actors and producers who were involved in the dicing up of Desilu repeat the same old bullshit lie. And that was, oh, the ratings were so bad, they couldn't make a profit. And that's not true at all. It was a hatchet job. So, I, that was a long-winded explanation of why there's only three seasons of The Flying Nun. Right? Of why there's only three seasons of Star Trek. Of why there 
I Dream a Genie ended in its fifth season. In fact, I believe Bewitched was also, may have also been shot on Desilu's studios. Uh, of why the Wild Wild West ended at, was it four or five? I think it might have been four seasons. Maybe I'm wrong. Of uh, why all this stuff happened. So, having said that, having gotten Sally Fields thing out of the way, having basically called the ratings for the third season bullshit. Um, I mean, I'm sure they dropped a little. Uh, a lot of people dropped a little and dropped because you did have the Vietnam War going on. A lot of people, you know, it, it was difficult to watch something fun when you had something depressing. But the ratings across the entire fucking board all dropped. And it was because of all of the protests, of all of the shit that's going on. You know, uh, bad stuff here and there. But, you know, at the same time, the ratings were also being rigged. So, this show was popular. Very popular. Because... It didn't push religion on anyone. And you might say, oh, Kevin, it's called The Flying Nun. Yeah, it's called The Flying Nun. Surprisingly enough, it's not called Touched by an Angel. Surprisingly enough, that actually makes it a really good show. <laughs> and what's even more surprising is that the Roman Catholic Church had a liaison at least one liaison, I think they assigned a few, to work with the writers to make sure everything, you know, uh, work with the writers, work with the set designers, work with the costuming, make sure people got the right terminology and the right basic functions of the Catholic Church. And that was it. Now, speaking as someone who's former Catholic, and I guess technically former Protestant, because I went to the churches with my grandmas and each grandma had their own church. Um, the only thing that you that I see in this show, when they quote a Bible verse or say something in Latin, it's usually for a cute little joke. You know, uh, the vast majority of the show, and the vast majority, I mean 99% of it, does not deal with any sort of pushing a religious message onto people. And that 1% of it uh, I th is like where she says, are you going to come and, and help out the Catholic uh, or, you know, the orphan outreach or the dad program? Or, I mean, it's not, I wouldn't even call it pushing. Now, you, you could probably say, but Kevin, they're in, they say the word none every two sentences. They're in habits, and they're talking about the convent all the time. Yeah. That's like their job. But it's not like touched by an angel. It's like if you look to Andy Griffith, and he's always talking about, he's always in the sheriff's office. He always is always talking about Otis or... Or this or that or what's against, you know, the, like, come on, Ope, you can't do that. You know, you got to blah, blah, blah. Would you say that he's pushing a police state agenda? No. Because that's his job. See, there's a difference between a person's 
job being represented in fiction and someone pushing something on you in an attempt to convert you. Touched by an angel is an example of trying to push something on you in order to convert you. In fact, the, the end of season one is a really touching episode about them going to great lengths to help a Jewish family and a synagogue to have a Jewish wedding. And they donate the, you know, the, the convent says, okay, well, you know, have it in our front lawn, you know, uh, because obviously they're, they just basically discuss the faith differences of, well, uh, we can't really have them get married in the church. That might be disrespectful to them. And so they, they have it on the lawn and, uh, Sally Field, Sister Bertrill, Bert, Bert, I'm not pronouncing her name right, the flying nun, Sally Field, goes to great lengths to get the Star of David to appear in the sky by using a fire extinguisher. And it's a very Jewish-centric episode. I mean, they, they're doing nothing but you know, uh, communicating with the Jew with the synagogue, with the rabbi, with all that stuff. Not once is either one pushing a religion. And Sally Fields more than happy, or none, and all the other nuns are more than happy to accommodate all of the Jewish traditions. And at the end, they sing, uh, uh, you know, they, they is it Hava? <sighs> Hava Nagila, am I pronouncing that correctly? God, I'm so tired. Can't even remember the name of the song. So they're singing it for the wedding. And you wouldn't call that pushing a Jewish agenda. No, you call that just having a Jewish wedding represented properly on screen. So what is the problem with the second season? The problem with the second season, as all the critics have said, it's fucking slapstick. All right? I say that maybe a little bit too harshly. It's not bad slapstick, but it's out of place. And there's so much better slapstick that happens in um, I Dream of Genie than in the show. I mean, it's just not great. It's not bad. It's not great. And then some people call the episodes in first season and third season, saccharine. Critics who use that word should be fired from their jobs. Saccharine is like Brady Bunch shit. All right? The show is not saccharine. And if a critic is so, so ass, much of an asshole, they can't tell the difference between an Andy Griffith level of communication and the fucking Brady Bunch, where they're like, Oh, gee, Mom, I'm so sorry. Brady Bunch crap. I mean, if they can't tell the difference between saccharine and what's on in the show, they're just not real critics. Now, is it aimed for kids? Absolutely. All the Screen Gems shows were aimed for kids. All of them. And family. And family and kids. So it's content appropriate for 
all ages. And uh, it's just really well written. A lot of it is just really well written. It's also based off of a book called The 13th Pelican. Look it up. It's out of print, by the way. Look it up if you can. Um, I just don't know how else to explain this. I don't know how to describe it. Um, flying is not the major thing. Like, flying is something she can do, and sometimes it helps her out, but it seems to spurn on more, uh, more plot forms of communication than anything else. It, it's, it's like a person driving a car, or maybe Iron Man flying around. It's not really a plot. Like, if you see Iron Man flying, it's not a plot that he flies, right? Maybe it can help the plot along. Like, oh my God, his flying killed out on him. But it's not the plot of anything that he's doing. It's the same thing here with the flying nun. Her flying, at least from the third, first and third seasons, is not a plot of the episode. I think it's barely even a plot of the first episode of the pilot. Um... And that's basically where it, where it ends, begins and ends, in terms of it providing an actual plot that's focused around her flying. Uh, with the slapstick, yeah, she seems to fly quite a bit, but the slapstick is... And that it's just really out of place. Uh, they're not bad episodes, but they're not. And when you go from the first season to the second season, uh, I think you are like six episodes into the second season, then the slapstick begins. Uh, there are a lot, the first six episodes of the second season, though, are very much first season scripts. And, uh, I think I'll end this by, you know, I don't know what rating to give it. If you like Andy Griffith, you'd love the, love the Flying Nun. I believe that the Flying Nun should be remade. Period. It should be remade. Maybe as a series of movies on Netflix, it would be wonderful. Uh, there's no pushing of a religion on anybody. In fact, you could have multiple religion uh, plots around multiple religious religions in the show with different plots, right? And without debasing any of the religions. But uh, let me give you an example of one of the most meaningful episodes, I believe, in The Flying Nun. Episode 1 of Season 2. It's about her making a song to help the underfunded convent out. And you, yeah, underfunded. Roman Catholic Church has all this money. They're not giving any money to these nuns. You know? These nuns are literally just surviving by the skin of their teeth. And all the nuns are, are you know, they're all handymen or handy women, fixing things, doing things on their own. You know, uh, anyway, so um, Sally Field talks to her old friend, uh, the actor of which actually started a huge law firm and fund to protect uh, child actors who are abused in Hollywood. Uh, he was abused in almost every single way. Um, and he became a lawyer to go out and destroy and protect, you know, people in Hollywood that abuse children. 
to tr and tried to protect children in Hollywood. He's a huge, he became a huge, huge, important figure. Uh, but uh, so if anybody recognizes him. And he's in a band called the Sundowners. Believe it or not, the Sundowners were an actual band. They were uh, as a, rev a review band, um, a venue band, that's it. They were typically a venue band for any uh, country singers or some rock singers or, you know, bigwigs. Unfortunately, a lot of their stuff, uh, their own stuff and stuff that they recorded with other people was lost in the 2008 Universal Studios fire. But they were an actual band, so they actually play well. Um, the lead actor, you know, who pretends to be part of the Sundowners, the guy I mentioned, uh, who's a big, huge uh, lawyer, if you ever look him up, um, he, he can sing. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's not like a really shitty band like you would see on the fucking Brady Bunch, right? So, uh, you know, I say that, but I mean, I get it. The Brady Bunch helped a lot of kids. Uh, you know, I don't know. I shouldn't be attacking shows like that because I actually know some people that said, Brady Bunch helped me get through some tough times. Okay, I get that. I get that. Uh, I shouldn't be swearing about the Brady Bunch. But um, Brady Bunch were very saccharine, at least for my taste. So they say, yeah, um, you write a song and uh, we'll play it. So she writes this really pretty song. And you only hear half of it. At the when she first writes it, if I remember correctly, I mean I just saw it today, and uh, I believe that's how it plays out. Because when you hear the full song at the end, there's an extra verse that really turns it on its head. So she sings, she writes a song after she's inspired by flying above everything, and uh, they turn the song just by changing a few words to uncut, uncut grass and turning on. And it's basically what they took from her, they turned into an acid song, a pro-drug song. And everyone, you know, Carlos says, well, it's going to be, you know, it's a great thing. And and the, the band defends it saying, it's great. You know, they the nuns walk out in the middle of the performance. And obviously, certain, uh, Sister Betrill is morb mor morbidly uh, embarrassed. And the, uh, you know, the, the head nun, keep forgetting her name. And she, she actually, at first she's going to criticize the uh, Sister Betrill, uh, but then she realizes how morbidly embarrassed the is Sally Field's character actually is. And so the uh, record producer comes in with the, uh, with the band and, uh, you know, Carlos, uh, the owner of the casino, a go, go. And, uh, they approach her and they say, well, why don't you, you know, it's a great song here. Take the royalties. And she says, because it's not my song. That's not the song I wrote. I would be, you know, basically uh, lying and taking something that didn't belong to me. 
And so they say, well, what happened? What'd you do? She said, well, um, what is it? The head mother says something about, um, well, you know, I guess we'll never hear that, you know, we would prefer never to hear that song again. And so the sister Betrill says, yes, you know, uh, please, you know, uh, I, I don't want anybody to hear that song. Not until after you hear the way it, re it, it really, um, it was written and meant to be heard. So she plays the song. And she talks about the, the sparkling sand and then the shards of glass and the beauty of the land and all that. And she ends the song by talking about how she, uh, you know, the person who's singing the song wants to fly high above the mushroom clouds. <laughs> and I'll be damned. No matter how many times I listen to that song, if I can figure out whether or not that song, I mean, it's obviously an anti-war song, an anti-nuclear war song. It's really heavy. And I'll be damned if I can figure out whether or not the person in the song is witnessing the nuclear apocalypse. Because things like talking about the sand and then shards of glass, I mean, that's what happens when a nuclear weapon strikes. It melts all of the sand and the glass. And um, just the way it's written and the way it's presented, it's a total blindside. And if you're not paying attention to the end, You'll miss it. It sounds like any other song about a beautiful landscape. But it's really about the end of the world, right? It's really about the end of the world. Sorry, I'm coughing here. Uh, if you don't, if you hadn't noticed, I'm pausing the audio quite frequently. I didn't take my Dayquil pills. So, um, yeah, that's... They don't mention it. They don't mention the content of the song, which is a stroke of genius. Because for little kids, you don't want to horrify them. But with the parents that are watching the, watching the show, they say, oh my God, right? And they immediately go from her ending the song to Carlos and the... Um, band's manager yelling at the representatives of the band. And the band guy says, what, what? I just, and, and uh, he said, what did I do wrong? And the, and the manager for the band says, you don't gild a li lily. You don't do this. You don't do that. What you did to her song, her song was a masterpiece, you know? So they actually do publish her song and it is Sally Field singing and so the convent is saved and um, obviously the nuns are you know the head nun is crying you know or you know she has tears by the end of the song and so 
You know, all the nuns realized that Sister Bertrill was literally trying her best to give the best kind of song, the most beautiful song she could, while supporting the convent and, you know, representing it properly. You know, so she wasn't betraying anything. She wasn't making a mockery of herself or of the people that she lives and works with. And it's also got a really powerful message. So when I say that they dealt with issues and morals. That's what I mean. Because there's nothing inherently Catholic about any aspect of that plot that would matter. You could take away the nuns. You could take, you could take away the nun habits. You could take away the convent. You could take away references. I mean, you know, the fact that they are Catholic. The whole, like, two references... And there's nothing in there that is anything close to being a religious, preachy commentary. The commentary was a universal commentary. And that was ban the bomb. Or essentially, no World War III, please. And I dare anybody to listen to that song and, know, and read the lyrics, know what the lyrics are saying, and not get choked up. I dare anybody. So that's the content uh, and type of show. Of course, they had fun ones. <laughs> Sorry, I hiccup there. Of course, they had fun shows. Uh, but every show has like a, a decent amount of Maybe morality plays to it, even if it's not in your face. You know, and, and the morality plays are not always that in your face. I think that's just the most powerful episode that they had. Uh, the morality plays are, you know, just subtle or just minor. But there are situations like, yeah, I got in the situation. I feel like Sister Betrill, you know, um, that type of thing. So that's why I compare it to Andy Griffith. And uh, I highly recommend it to put and to paraphrase Sally Field. I like it. Tonight, right now, I like it. Or however she said it. I probably screwed up that quote a little bit. Right now, here, right now, tonight, I liked it. Anyway, so I like it, you know, it's fun, it's a good show, it should be remade, far superior to Touched by an Angel in every way possible, especially since Touched by an Angel would spend 10 to 15 fucking minutes at the end of each show revealing themselves. Don't reveal yourself to the humans. Oh, now you can reveal yourselves and tell them God's grace has touched you. Like, fuck that. I mean, fuck that because... Shit. I'd rather watch Sister Bertrill. Rather have her sing, sing songs to me, uh, teaching me my lesson, than having an angel appear out of nowhere saying... Accept God's grace and you will go to heaven. Look, why don't you just have God be like the vengeful God from the Old Testament? Kill all my enemies. How about that? 
I'm <laughs> just kidding. So, um, heavily support it. Thank you for listening to my over, over length, uh, review and explanation of what happened to Desilu Studios. And, uh, I hope you have a wonderful evening. Take care.